Hello and welcome to the Beamy podcast. I am your host for today, uh, the editor of the the Beamy Editorial Committee, Maurice Gordon. I'm joining you from my host organisation, the University of Central Lancashire, and I am delighted to be joined by two of my local members of our International Collaborating Centre for Beamy, uh, Dawn Gerbert, who's uh, the Acting Director for the Centre for Excellence in Learning and Teaching. Hello, Dawn. Hello. And uh, Elaine Hill, who's a Senior Lecturer from the School of Health Sciences. Hello, Elaine. Hello. Okay, so for today we're going to do something uh, which I've been looking forward to do for a while. We were lucky enough to have our team from Amy uh, record uh, the Beamy Short Communications session uh, over at the Amy uh, Annual Conference in Helsinki. This is a, a staple of the annual uh, international scientific meeting at Amy. Uh, we're certainly planning one for this year as well. Uh, and we get some phenomenal abstracts. And this year uh, the unifying theme was to really touch on F- uh, some elements of methodology and particularly challenges associated with review. And today we're going to talk about a review uh, of which I was involved as an author as you'll hear when I uh, declare it at the beginning of the specific recording from the time Uh, and it was a review looking at assessing uh, behavioural and social science curricular components in undergraduate education and because assessment was the goal and uh, Dawn and myself have been involved in another uh, review which has an assessment focus there are perhaps some learning challenges or points that we thought bear talking so first of all I'll hand over to myself from a few months ago uh, introducing uh, Ellie Hothsell who was the um, lead author uh, on this almost completed review which was presented there and then we'll uh, come back and give you some thoughts and ideas okay uh, so that brings us on to the uh, the fifth abstract uh, Ellie uh, Hothersell is going to join us from University of Dundee a conflict of interest um, I'm a co-author on this work you were uh, about to be outed yes so I'm not going to ask any questions uh, and uh, Ellie, please take it away. This is a piece of work assessing the behavioural and social science curricular components for undergraduate medical education, a BME systematic review. Thanks very much, Morris. Um, how am I meant to follow that, though? I mean, the fulsome <laughs> praise as much as anything else. I'm kind of stuffed, aren't I? Also, I've never knowingly kept a time in my life, so when you all start nodding off, I will try and take the hint. Um, so I'm going to give a absolute canter through... some of the bits of this to enable me as much time as I can to expand on the bits that I think are most interesting. Um, So the background. So I wear too many hats, but the one that is relevant here is that I I started a few years ago in Dundee as the teaching lead for public health, um, epidemiology, research methods, various other things that sort of (laughs) fall into the same camp based on the UK's outcome for graduates, which was at that point called Tomorrow's Doctors. And within Tomorrow's Doctors, there are a series of outcomes uh, which I think are are vitally important, uh, but are perhaps patchily taught in different places, and I couldn't find any information about how these things were being assessed anywhere. And within CanMeds, which is perhaps one of the most pervasive medical curricula now, I mean that in a good way, um, similar kind of themes come up. So particularly, I think, around advocacy and social accountability. And and I think lots of of parts of the plenary, lots of parts of talks elsewhere have kind of highlighted the, the absolute vital role that these areas play in our roles as doctors or other health professionals as agents for social change, for being a force for good on the planet. And yet, I couldn't find any information about reliable ways of 
actually assessing this stuff. And so I may even have met Morris for coffee at a previous Amy, and we hatched the stupid plan of doing a BME review on this. And I've just sat and listened to um, your description of a scoping review and thought, why didn't we do that instead? (laughs) So here we are. So my point being... And I think I'm really delighted that Threshold Concepts was described to you so well this morning because it saves me from that rant later on. I suspect a lot of these bits that we have as learning outcomes are Threshold Concepts. And so we're trying to shove Threshold Concepts like social accountability into the round hole of assessment. So... Enthusiastic, full of energy, (laughs) full of optimism, we set ourselves a task. This is the title of our systematic review. Um, And it's it's catchy. Assessing behavioural and social science curricular components of undergraduate medical students. And and we set ourselves up with a, a PICO model. So they're population undergraduate medical students. My logic being, our logic being, that... um, that that assessment in this area was likely to be different from elsewhere and that validity arguments from one place to another may well not translate. We were looking for behavioural and social science teaching assessment specifically and in terms of what outcome we were looking for, we were using formative or summative assessments. We assembled a team which has a striking UK bias in this particular case, but that was really because we were lucky enough to be able to find people relatively close to us with the right range of expertise. So we've got some public health and some behavioural science in there. We've got some previous experience with BME reviews. We need to tap even more of that yet. And you'll notice at the bottom there we've got our specialist librarian listed. Flowchart, because it's mandatory. I I thought that I was describing a vast number of papers that we had searched through until I saw everybody else's. So I'm really reminded of the fact that I managed to constrain this topic better than I thought I had at the time. Um, The interesting thing is that that we ran our search through a number of different databases. And... um, and yet, when we took duplicates out, there really hadn't been that many duplicates. So my anxiety is we may have missed things. But as I'm like, doubtless going to say again in a minute, I think the problem with this topic is it's so hard to find the assessment hidden in the discussions elsewhere. It's in, uh, there's some very fervent nodding happening, happening over here in case you've missed it. It's, it. it's not possible to have found everything. And the other thing I'm going to say here which I wouldn't have remembered to otherwise, is we did not let language be an obstacle at all. So we reviewed Japanese papers, we reviewed uh, Polish papers, uh, all manner of things. My poor mother translated the German papers, uh, my friends translated the Polish ones. Google Translate is a really good way of finding out that there's nothing in a paper you really need. It might not give you a good enough translation to be able to use it for the literature, but it's good enough if at the, the scoping stage. And the interesting thing is that that was all we needed it for. My poor mother has not yet been informed that the German one's not in, though. So, so I think I found this, you know, the funnel was really dramatic. This is not to scale. And at the end of it, we had six papers. Six. They described a lot more than six that, that covered our inclusion and exclusion criteria. And the the main problem for us 
was you could get most of the way through a paper that looked like it was about at any moment to tell you about the assessment process, and then it reached the end instead. And there's a lot of them out there, I can tell you. And it really was a full-blown needle-in-a-haystack kind of territory. So we had a very broad initial search, which is why, in some ways, it's, it's almost a scoping search. We, we were really using very general terms and then having to rely on the reading of full papers in order to try and find the descriptions of assessment because it's really common to find assessment mentioned in a single paragraph in a paper but not in the abstract. So we needed a lot of full papers to get us there. We excluded papers that didn't mention assessment, which, as I say, was often harder to work out than you'd have thought. And we, we made the decision that we would exclude papers where assessment, something that could be loosely described as an assessment tool was used, but it wasn't being used in a way which gave the students any feedback, that gave students any way of knowing whether or not they were doing well in a subject. There are a lot of evaluations of courses out there, um, although none of them, it has to be said, describe to any great level of detail how they worked. Often they will describe that they used uh, multiple choice testing to evaluate their course with the implicit assumption that using multiple choice testing is a valid tool in and of itself, which I guess was where I started with in all of this. And we excluded anything which was postgraduate as in after your medical qualification because undergraduate and postgraduate is always slightly problematic in medical terminology, isn't it? These are our six papers, and you'll see the same biases that you saw everywhere else. So what happens when you shrink down from 100 and something to six is all of the other countries fall out and you're left with the US and the UK. And as I mentioned, that was despite us really working to avoid the language bias. But I think that reflects the fact that the curriculum in the UK, in Canada, and presumably in the USMLA in America emphasises these areas in a way that perhaps they're not emphasised so much elsewhere. They covered five different modes of assessment. There's only one mode of assessment I would argue you see twice, which is the earliest paper in 1966, short notes, all the way back into the present in 2016, where you get extended short answers again. So perhaps we've come full circle. We quality-coded them, I think perhaps the summary you can take from that is the quality is really not great. And when you get to the actual information, so that's how much information can you get from the studies full stop. When you get to how much information can you get about the assessments, about what we actually wanted to know, it's even worse. I haven't put that up. But I have put this because my slight fixation is on the validity at, um, end of that. Of those six papers, two mentioned anything about validity whatsoever. One told us the Kronbach's alpha of the assessment. That's the most recent paper. And one told us that the multiple choice questions they used were assessed for criteria, but they didn't tell us what thresholds they used. So my surprises in this were, although I know behavioural sciences is a, a category within the USMLE step one, there was not a single published paper giving any information about it. And I tried grey literature too, and I tried asking 
um, the organization whose initials have completely escaped my head, and they didn't give me any information. There's nothing from Canada, despite it being in CanMeds. And I think the problem is, I've seen this diagram tweeted elsewhere in Amy. This has just come out about how we construct the non-scientific or the non-biomedical paradigms of what being a doctor is. And we all, I think, I'm hoping, agree that this is really, really important stuff. And we have no clue how to assess it. And I now I feel able to confidently say we don't have a clue how to assess it. There are six papers on it. It makes reflection seem positively <laughs> overcovered, doesn't it? <coughs> and I just I want I've, I, I stole this from the 1966 paper verbatim because I thought it was, you know, described the problem then, and we haven't moved on since. Various attempts have been made to use multiple choice type examinations. However, the subject matter of psychology is not amenable to this type of treatment. Answers to psychology questions are seldom of the either-or variety. Multiple-choice questions have to be on relatively unimportant details of fact and cannot deal in more abstract ideas, which are an important feature of psychological theorizing. That's where we are. I think the problem is we're in this, which apparently is called an Ouroboros, where the snake's eating itself. The assessment validity cycle is vitally important, but we can't demonstrate validity in these topics. So we can't assess them the right way. So we don't show that we value them because we're not assessing them. And it goes on. So if it's not assessed, it's not important, and our students think it's not important. And if it's not assessed, it's not taught because we're all trying to measure ourselves against different criteria, the, the rating scales, everything else. You can read the conclusions because I have to stop. Thank you. So it was very uh, interesting to hear again uh, that recording, a few months old, but certainly remember it. And uh, uh, once again, I think congratulations to Ellie. It's a phenomenal piece of work. And uh, from another podcast that we've uh, recorded, which is about top tips for doing a review, I think all credit to Ellie that she's been an absolute thundering force in seeing this through and really keeping a team um, together over a number of months. And I think that's so important with a systematic review as a as a academic endeavour that's done in a very disparate way um, over time and geography so that was really really good I found it working with it tremendously useful uh, now that you've listened to it and neither of you were there at the session so you've seen this retrospectively and um, what, what were your initial thoughts I felt it it really uh, underlines and highlights one of the real difficulties that you have in assessments about that whole issue about what actually it is that you are able to measure uh, and whether you are um, able to really get to the crux of the transferable element or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd echo that. Um, yeah. You know, you, you could apply this just as well to the areas where, where I work within nursing, within operating department practice, um, as anywhere else. That we we sometimes we set up things where we say we are assessing something, but are we? Or are we assessing something completely different? So do you think this is more of a universal problem across the, the range of competences in healthcare? Or do you think the issue that Ellie focused in on, specifically about these behavioural and social science, the public health, uh, occasionally ethical, possibly nutritional, uh, other elements outside of core curriculum um, um, that are often seen as the real nitty-gritty stuff of health and health educational sort of components... 
is there a specific problem here or is this just so much of a problem with anatomy, clinical skills? What do you think? I think it's a wider problem here, but I think it's um, an intransigent problem across the piece, actually. Yeah. So it's very, very hard to design in an assessment which measures exactly what you want it to measure. And I think what we often find happens in educational settings is that you default to an assessment style that you know will work rather than actually thinking, what is it clearly that's being assessed? I suppose it gives a problem for two major groups where they might want to call on synthesis, which is what this was about. And that is the groups who are given the job of um, quality assuring this. And I'm thinking of governing bodies. I'm looking in the pockets of, in the UK, you know, as our institution, we have a new medical course that's being looked at by the GMC, the General Medical Council. Uh, and whilst they come and they, they look at us with a fine tooth comb, actually, if we put ourselves in their shoes, they've got a real problem because they've got to quality assure something with the challenges in mind that you've said. What is the model that they need to assure against because there's such doubt in that area? And I suppose the second issue that springs to mind is the other group who might be interested in a synthesis are those who are starting from a standing position. Those who are like us here are doing new courses and want to go out there quite appropriately as good scientists and scholars and clinicians would do and say, what is the evidence base? If I'm going to assess behavioural sciences, how am I going to do it? Uh, certainly, we've already talked at length and uh, in different settings about education we're looking to bring forward. So, for example, Elaine, we're doing a lot of work on handover as a yeah. skill. Yeah. Teaching is one thing, but how we assess it yeah. is a challenge. And similarly, Dawn, you had a lot of responsibility in designing and getting from, from a standing position and into professional learning elements of the curriculum in the medical course. And whatever the pros and cons are of the teaching choices, when it comes to assessing those components, you're very much faced with this issue. And I can see how, as I know we did, our first step is to want to go to the literature. And as a proponent of systematic review as a technique to synthesise the literature, what you're looking for is a good piece there. And that brings me back to the experiences that Ellie's beautifully described of our team. And I think we experienced in our review that we did of non-technical skills assessment in education. And that is... You're trying to look at something that you know that most, if not everyone, is doing. So there should be an awful lot published. And it seems like there's not. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the great challenges. For me, there are a couple of challenges. One is that sometimes particular types of education, particular types of teaching and learning become almost wallpaper and nobody studies them in great detail because by virtue of what they are, they are always there. And I think the other issue for educational practice is that sometimes we can um, focus in a little too strongly on quality assuring the process regardless of thinking about is the focus of what we're trying to assess actually also quality assured. So we almost get there, but we fall, fall short of what we actually intended to do. I think there's another issue as well, which is that we're being increasingly driven by what students like and what students want. So there's a tendency in some cases to focus on did the students enjoy it? They may have enjoyed it, but did they actually learn anything? Was it actually a benefit? You know, if I pull those three points together, I don't have a problem, starting from the end with your point, Elaine, if we do that, if we do focus on what students want, but should we not be sharing that experiences in the scholarly discourse so we can all see what the strengths are together, what those implications are, so we don't have to all learn it. I see 
a lack of community here. I see every institution out for themselves across the globe having to learn through experience, having to do it in isolation. And even though attempts are made to try and solve this, we have, for example, Ideal as a question bank internationally for medical education with 36,000 questions. It helped us locally to get started. It's a plug. I have no benefits from, from them. I'm not linked to them. But they were absolutely vital. They solved the problem, which is how do you build a quality assured database of questions to start with? But that's one resource, one resource with its own limitations, strengths, but limitations too. Uh, if we do that, if we do change what we're doing because of experiences or feedback from students, do is it not incumbent on us, and when I say us, I mean the wider community, the listeners of this podcast, to go out there in a scholarly discourse and tell us about it. So when you are starting as a new member of this community to design your own new course, new curriculum, revision, whatever your challenge is, that you can learn together. And then thinking back to, to, to where you sort of situated things, Elaine, um, I think it's right um, that we have, we have significant difficulty and that sometimes the focus is in the wrong area. That we're looking at, did we do a process well rather than was it the right process in the first yeah, place? Um, but again, there's very little out there, even about the primary process, never mind quality assuring it or what the focus is. And, and, and let's come back to Ellie's experience. The entire published evidence base with a very wide set of search terms so this was not focused i do not think we missed anything we found six papers in gmc tomorrow's doctor which is obviously rebranded now but at the time that was the relevant document there is a good 20 to 30 percent of learning outcomes relevant to this similarly in the us and, and canada these are big areas that are well represented in curricula and assessment why is there not more out there Mm. and the why is almost a call that's not really a challenge to the methodology of the systematic review that will come later it's almost a call that needs to come from such systematic reviews that we found in our non-technical skills non-technical skills is on the agenda everywhere why or why we did not find more than just a handful of papers describing how one assesses these things even though they increasingly are being reflected in abstracts at meetings as being an area for assessment it is something that is a mismatch that I can't answer and I genuinely don't know why people aren't publishing, because we know every medical establishment, every nursing establishment, every midwifery establishment across the globe assesses elements of behavioural outcomes, social science outcomes, clinical skills outcomes, anatomy questioning, uh, physiology, all these areas at core. There should be hundreds of thousands of papers. But in a way, I think that's part of the problem. I think that we... We linger in the areas of our own uniqueness because they're of interest to us and the things that are universal and shared and commonplace attract less of our attention. So I actually think those those two things exist in tension. The fact that it is universal and ubiquitous actually means that um, often people don't choose to look at it in the detail of the specific and the unique and the innovative. So you mean there's a negative publication bias away from... Um, mass problems towards uh, novelty I think so I, I, I think that for a lot of early career researchers particularly they would be encouraged to look at the innovative and the different and the specific rather than because I think they would make the assumption that the universal has already been deeply done when actually what you're saying is the reverse is true and it's not been looked at clearly enough. Well, I think, Elaine, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that because yeah. I think it's fair to say to the audience that you are working extremely diligently as a very experienced and senior educator towards your own academic development yeah. track. Yeah. Uh, and we're delighted to be able to join you on that journey yeah. and support you. But I think 
we've had discussions in this way about what is vital and what's important in making a a scholarly career and a scholarly progression. And it's interesting that we're now sitting here and saying to you in the audience that novelty doesn't necessarily need to be part of that. No. And I wonder what you think. I, th- I think what Dawn said is absolutely true. And I, I wonder whether another one of those, another reason for it, is that we become blasé about the familiar. Mm. That takes something like communication. Communication is something that you're supposed to be taught and assessed in all nursing programmes. I can't see, personally, any evidence of that being taught or assessed within the nursing programmes that I've been part of. But if you ask anybody working on them, they'll say, oh yes, we teach and assess it. How? Oh well, um, the student's going to practice and their mentor comments on it. But that's a, you know, on against what is the mentor assessing it? What are the criteria? Um what have we taught anybody about communication? What do we mean by communication? So are it's, you, are you, are you yeah. suggesting a slightly more worrying but probably accurate uh, viewpoint uh, that actually partially some of this paucity of evidence could be that we're all accepting or even hiding the fact that whilst there are learning outcomes in these areas and that we do the bare minimum to uh, demonstrate that we're assessing them, that perhaps what's really here is a hidden iceberg of unassessed important areas yeah and I think because you know we all think well we all communicate Mm. Um, I communicate because I write things down I communicate because I phone people up or I talk to them I pass on information yes we may be communicating but is it effective Mm. Um, I I think yeah and I think for me some of this gets lost in the whole stuff around the hidden curriculum and perhaps too much of the curriculum's in hiding and that we need to make it more visible and find ways to, to measure it, to evaluate it. Um, because I think communication is a really, really good example of something that falls into that hinterland of the hidden curriculum. The thing that you will pick up almost by osmosis as you travel through a programme that fundamentally focuses on other things. And yet at the end of it we'll say that communication is actually fundamental. I, I, again, I would second it. I could certainly, I can hear the voices of listeners saying that's not true. We're amazing at assessing communication, and my challenge back to them would be: we're talking about assessment here. So why is it that there isn't the published evidence to go with it? We're part of a community. There are many ways to publish. We're obviously on a Beamy podcast as part of the charitable organisation that's Amy. Amy has MedEd Publish. MedEd Publish is a phenomenal resource for people who are looking to get into publishing that allows them to publish and be peer-reviewed retrospectively after publication. So it opens the doors to everybody. And therefore that question of importance, which is so much of a barrier to getting published, that could be the major reason why people may claim they've taken their phenomenal work developing their own communication skills assessments, for example, in their own curricula, as a direct response to the challenge you put out there, Elaine. That's their answer to getting it out there. There are many other open access platforms, scholarly platforms. Generally speaking, these international meetings like Amy, and again, there is a bias there that I accept. We are a a BME initiative, is an Amy initiative. Um, I I think they offer tremendous opportunities. And those abstracts are there. We look at them when we do our reviews, so those sources are found. Um, I I don't think that's a barrier. And I suppose that brings me on to... Um, a slightly more practical and probably the final main point I've made that's raised from this, that's from our own experiences, is assessment uh, in systematic review. And that is the genuine problem with finding these papers. Because what we found, and what Ellie described usefully in her review that I did with her, and what we found in our review of non-technical skills, is that assessment is often used as a term 
But there's two forms of assessment in the context of the papers they can be describing. The first is what we actually want, which is an assessment that we can use as educators with our students. An assessment that therefore has to meet the rules and criteria of a good assessment. It has to be valid, it has to be reliable, it has to be feasible, it has to be cost effective. All those criteria are vital. But then there's another form of assessment. And this is where they're using assessment as a proxy for the term outcome measure. And what you've actually got is a paper that's describing an intervention or a teaching programme or a curricular programme and improving it to get it published. They test its effectiveness and they do that through an outcome measure. And they in that paper refer to that as assessment. Now, what you end up with is something that might indeed prove or at least demonstrate in their context the efficacy of their intervention. But it's not the sort of thing that could be translated into a curriculum as an assessment tool. It hasn't been looked at even for the questions of validity, reliability, cost effectiveness, feasibility, all those key issues. And I'm sure assessment experts and psychometricians listening will come up with 20 more items on the list. That hasn't been considered. In fact, it's not even designed to do that. It's merely there to get the paper published and to prove their teaching had some effectiveness. Now... I have a bias that I think, frankly, we should be publishing far more papers that don't do that and instead ask the paper to the primary paper to not focus on whether it worked, but to describe how it worked, why it worked and mm. what it actually was. And we've discussed that in other podcasts, that that material is vital. But taking that conceit, there is a real challenge for those who decide to undertake a BME or non-BME systematic review of assessment in separating those two groups and I would propose that at the point of scoping and the point of writing your protocol you get very firm clarity on that and I can think back to our recent experience on the non-technical skills review when our colleagues in in the US we were joined by colleagues from uh, American medical schools joined us and I'm thinking specifically of Michelle Daniel who's um, one of our uh, big um, associates over at the University of Michigan Medical School um, we had long discussions in late night in the UK uh, late afternoon over in the US trying to decide was this assessment or was this outcome measure and we backed and to and froed and forward and backwards on decisions because it just wasn't clear and it was a real problem and whilst we tried to get answers from authors sometimes in these papers it was less able and I think that's a challenge that remains my my um, gauntlet that I would throw to primary authors is there is need for all of you to report anything and everything about assessment because there's not enough but in doing so make it clear what you're describing is a paper about a form of assessment and in terms of those doing synthesis and secondary evidence synthesis in particular in this area be mindful of that challenge and be very clear in your protocol and in your own minds at the planning phase before you even start what is an example of each type and what you're accepting and what you're not. That's a really good point. And I think, you know, even just looking at the work that Ellie did and the papers that she selected, it opens up a really interesting gap, the sheer paucity of papers that do what you describe mm. and the availability of data with which to work, comparative or otherwise. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's a really interesting takeaway message for me mm. and would encourage me to... Um, encourage other people to engage with what seems very familiar and overly reviewed, overly studied because actually in reality that is not the case and there's plenty of scope to do this type of work. Well you know if that 
if that's the message that my director for my local Centre for Excellence in Teaching and Learning takes, I'm taking that as a success from this conversation. I think that's a great point in which to end this particular podcast. Thank you once again for joining us. Listeners, I I would throw the same gauntlet out to you and let's please respond to Dawn's take-home message from today. Thank you again for joining us and we hope to uh, have you listen again soon for the next Beamy podcast. Thank you.